0: Yeah, shout hallelujah, right? I am so excited to be here. I don't know where Chris preaches from. I can barely see him on the screen when I'm watching online, so... Um. (laughs) I don't know what kind of camera y'all are using. Um. Wow, we are excited to be here, and it's going to be hard for me not to be emotional to look out and see everybody's faces. When you've been in a place for the last year or so where um, Chris's sermon last week talked about the importance of knowing someone's name. You don't know anybody's name, and they don't know your name. And you barely know how to ask, how to say, what is your name, because you're learning a new language. Um, And so, to see people that I know and that know me, so encouraging to see uh, for my family. uh, Myla was only six months old when we left here today. She celebrates two years. Um, And so… It's amazing how time does fly. Uh, I was putting on this jacket also for the first time in a, in a long time because I wasn't about to wear a coat like this in the, in the tropics. Um, and I reached into the pocket and I found my name tag. <laughs> and so um, this is kind of special because when I got this name tag, we were going under a, a big change, a big transition a merger, so to speak, a, a, re, a uniting of a congregation that would never look the same. It says East Brainerd Church of Christ, Iglesia de Cristo. And we welcomed in 100 plus new members of this body that now we are bilingual, multicultural, multi-ethnic, and I can actually talk to some of you guys now. <laughs> so that's pretty special. Um, I want to just commend you for that. As someone that's been living abroad, um, only seeing news from home via television or uh, reading it on the, on the internet or sometimes hearing about it from the local people there asking me what, what's going on there, um, I want to commend you. Because to me, to look into this crowd, in this time in our world, there is no more powerful witness to the good news of Jesus Christ than to look at a church that is diverse, that has worked hard over the last year, year and a half, to say it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what you look like, what language you speak, how much money you have, what jobs you have, you are welcome here. And we're going to do whatever we can to make sure each and every person that walks in those doors are welcome. Praise God. Gracias a Dios, right? And so while many others are trying to figure out how do we live in a very global world, I'm proud to say that I know East Brainerd is going to be one of those and is one of those beacons that says, this is how you do it. Let's share a meal together. Amen. Right? So, praise God. Praise God. I'm so thankful to be here for that. And so this morning, I've got the, uh, the privilege to talk about the good news. Uh, I understand the last few weeks you've been talking about a life on mission. A life on mission. And um, what I've learned and what I believe that is essential for a life on mission is to have a gospel-shaped heart. You can't live a life on mission for God if you don't know what the gospel is, what the power of the gospel is, and how it will dramatically change someone's life in this world. And so if you want to live a life on mission, you've got to have a gospel-shaped heart. And so this morning, I want to talk about the good news. I'm going to talk about the good news and remind us just what it is, what is so good about that news in our lives, in this world. I want to talk about that. And then I am going to talk about some hindrances, some hindrances that we've seen Satan try to throw in the path of the work of Jesus Christ, of the good news, and see through Scripture as the good news spread in the early church, what Satan tried to do to stop that. And see if maybe we're seeing some of those things today. But this morning I want to, to really share and remind us what is so good about the news that we all believe in. You've had some, some words that Chris has thrown out to connect and to serve and to tell. And to have a gospel-shaped heart is one that has eyes open to connect with people to serve people, and to tell them that there is hope in the world. Um, Some of you have already gotten to see my two girls, and I learned some lessons from them this year. They taught me many things. Um, Some of you will see the gray hair that I've returned with, so I've learned many lessons from them. But my daughter, Adeline, who's three and a half, turns four in December, Um, We walked a lot of places while we were in San Jose uh, to language school and to the grocery store and and various places. So I had a a really great opportunity to to walk alongside my daughter, literally walk up and down the streets as she explored the world around her. And as I was gripped with fear every time she would step into the sidewalk and head towards the road and all these cars because everything was, was a big city, concrete everywhere. Well, one day we were walking to the panaderia uh, that was just a, a block from our house, the, the bread store, and there was a man lying on the side of the road. And he was, uh, he was obviously homeless, he was asleep, and he had covers all over his head. And as I was walking, uh, as every good missionary does, you separate your children from that, right? <laughs> and so I said, okay, I don't want you to come walk on this side. So I'm walking and, and he's right there in our path and we walk beside him and she looks and she can't help but look. And just as children do, she said, what's wrong with him? Why is he sleeping outside? And so I explained, you know, he don't know about his life, but I know that he, he's lacking maybe some family, some money to be able to have a home, a bed. And she said, let's pray for him, Daddy, so that he can find a mommy and daddy. That's a gospel-shaped heart. Right? My natural reaction was to separate myself from brokenness, and my daughter, who was not even, barely three years old, said, "Let's go close to him. Let's pray for him. That's how you connect. That's how you serve. That's how you tell people in this world that, that's broken, that there's hope that we have a God that can change your life and your eternity. So let's have a gospel-shaped heart. What does it look like? I was sitting um, in in Scripture. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture this morning. I'm going to just tell stories because I love to tell stories. Um, I was in a room with uh, a local preacher there uh, in Costa Rica, and he had made a contact with... A family, a man and a woman. The woman had been coming to church, and her it, this was her uh, boyfriend. He uh, wasn't a Christian, but he'd been coming to church, and this preacher had been studying with him for several weeks and months. And he invited me to come along for a few weeks, so I got to join him and, and learn from him. And we were sitting in their back room, real small house, and uh, sitting around the table. And for the last month. The, the preacher had been studying baptism. He'd kind of gone through the various, well, the plan of salvation. He'd reached the point of baptism. And he had done many, many lessons. And I could tell that he was kind of thinking, okay, I don't know what much to say here. This guy's got to make a decision. But one of the lessons that he gave, uh, he was, on this particular night, giving examples of why we should be baptized. Or look at the people in Scripture that were baptized. Um, and so, because they were baptized in response to hearing the good news, we also need to be baptized. And so, the man turned to Acts chapter 8, and it's a story that we all know, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And he goes through the whole story, and he really hones in on the last part that says, you see, this man was baptized when he heard the good news of Jesus. And I watched the man's face, and it was like a brick wall, it was stone wall. While I'm reading the story and I'm thinking about what is going through the eunuch's mind that says, I'm in the middle of the desert, but here's water. Let me jump out and and jump in the water. Um, I'm thinking, this guy is not... he's missing something here. There's something missing from this message that, that maybe the preacher just didn't emphasize. So I just asked him a question. Because there in the Scripture, after Philip approaches the chariot and they've been talking, they're reading through Isaiah... It says he heard, after the eunuch heard the good news of Jesus Christ, he believed, and he said, here's water, what keeps me from being baptized? So I asked the guy, what is so good about the news that the Ethiopian eunuch heard? That he would just jump out of the chariot and be baptized? Sometimes it's easy to emphasize the the action or the rituals or the the very essential parts of our Christian faith, but we gloss over what the heart of those actions are, and that's the gospel. And so this guy looks at me and goes, I don't know, What, what was so good about it? Well, let's think about this. The Ethiopian eunuch was coming from Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. He was there to worship because he wanted to be a part of the family of God. He wanted to worship God. He believed. He no doubt heard a little bit about what had happened during that time with Jesus on the cross and this rumor about a resurrected Lord. But he's left the temple area. And he's reading Isaiah. And one of the things that we know about this man is that he is an Ethiopian, therefore not a Jew, and that he is a eunuch. And if you know the old law, I know all, all of us know the old law, in Deuteronomy it says that those that are eunuchs cannot enter the assembly of God. We also know, according to the old law, that those that are Gentiles cannot enter the assembly of God. (laughs) But being a eunuch is even worse than that. And so he came from an area where he wanted to be close to God. He wanted to worship God. He was there at the temple, but we know that the temple was set up where you had... In the middle, the Holy of Holies and the the worship that would go on. In the middle of the temple, you had the court for the men, the court for the women. And progressively, it got uh, farther away from the, the, the middle to where God was. You had the Gentile, or the proselytes, those that had professed faith in God but weren't Jews. They were on the outer wall there. And then you had the part for those that were unclean. So this guy was unclean. He wanted to be with God. And when he came to Jerusalem to worship, he got to stand on the outskirts of what was going on in the center, far away from God. Everybody looked at him. No, you cannot be a part of the assembly. And he's jumping up and down trying to see what's going on because he so desires to be a part. And so Philip enters in to the chariot and says... Do you understand what you're reading? And he's reading about the Lamb. How can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? He says he starts with that very chapter. And we know if you continue on in Isaiah, and I think this is what Philip did uh, in chapter 56, it talks about that all Gentiles, when the Messiah comes, all Gentiles will be welcomed in. Not only that, it goes and specifically says that even eunuchs will be welcomed into the family of God. Don't you know that as soon as he heard that, he probably saw a little puddle in the middle of the desert and said, listen, I'll do whatever you want me to do because I want to be a part of the family of God. So, okay, die. Let's be buried. And let's rise anew. And you're a part. So all of a sudden, this guy on the outskirts with really no hope. How can you change your ethnicity? How can you change your physical features? He had no hope of being with God, but the good news is that he can be with God. The good news says it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, what your physical body uh, hinders you from. The good news is that you belong, that you are accepted, that you are welcome. Man, no wonder he wanted to be baptized, right? No wonder. He went on rejoicing. John chapter 4, we read of another story of good news. We read of a woman who's gone out in the middle of the day. It's an interesting detail. This the Samaritan woman who has to get water to survive, like everybody in that time, from a well that's outside of the city. And she goes out in the middle of the day, and and everybody knows, if you've been in places where you have to draw water from a well, when we were in Africa, I learned this, um, the women drew the water, and they would go out in the mornings and the evenings. Nobody went in the middle of the day. Why? It was hot. (laughs) You had to walk a long way. You had to carry a lot of water back. So it was hot. So nobody went in the middle of the day. This woman went in the middle of the day and she was alone. That's the other thing you don't do when you go to draw water. You don't go alone for a couple of reasons. One, for safety. Women always travel together to draw the water. It was safer that way. Another reason is for community. I remember Bill Sampson being there in, in Zambia with us at one point. We were sitting around. He saw these women walking with the water on their heads back to their village and he asked them, how many times a day do you do this? And they said, we do it three times a day. Well, how far is the well? Oh, it's just a, a kilometer. Uh, three times a day carrying 40 liters of water. That's a lot. It's heavy. I tried. Um, but they did it together. It was their way of having community. So what does this tell you about this woman? She's Samaritan. She leaves the city in the middle of the day alone. She has no one she's an outsider and, and really there's just probably one exit out of the city everybody knows that she's going and so she feels this immense amount of shame every time she has to go and get the necessities of life she's just covered in it well we know the story Jesus is there she's drawing water they have this beautiful in, in encounter he talks about this living water And she asked, well, where is this living water that I don't have to be coming out here every day? Because for her, that was so embarrassing. Why was it embarrassing? Well, Jesus said, well, come, bring your husband. And immediately, we know what her response was. Well, I don't have one. He goes, you're right, you have had five. And this one that you're with now is, is not even your husband. And so she, like anybody who's been embarrassed or wanting to hide anything, you change the subject, right? And she starts talking about where we worship. All of a sudden, this outsider Samaritan woman becomes a theologian in worship. We work, Some say worship on this mountain in Jerusalem, blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, wait a minute. You're, you're missing something. I know who you are. This woman is ashamed of who she is. I know who you are. And she says, Yeah, one day the Messiah is going to explain all this. And what is so incredible about this story is that if you read through the Gospel of John, you see that the whole book is about, you know, Jesus making himself known in the world, that he is the Messiah. There's all these conversations about the authority who is he? And Jesus rarely says, I am he. But in this case, to this woman, the first woman that he, rec- that he Himself says, I am the Messiah, is to a Samaritan woman, which we know He wasn't supposed to be talking to, adulterous. There's something that happens there in the good news, in the Gospel, that it doesn't matter that Jesus knew everything about her. He made Himself known to her. There was a mutual knowing that she had never experienced before in her entire life. She was an outcast. There was no hope for her. There was obviously longing for a fulfillment in her heart as she had tried with man after man. That only Jesus could provide. And the beautiful story to the good news there is that she goes back into the city and all of a sudden, where did the shame go? Because she's talking to everybody about a man that she met at the well. It says he's the Messiah. That's good news. It's good news that for the outcast, you're accepted. For the unknown, you are known and loved. For the woman that was bleeding for 12 years, she's there in the crowd. She grabs Jesus' garment. It's interesting. Jesus is on his way to make another healing, he's trying to go help a man, Jairus, to see his, his child. And so he's kind of in a hurry because the child's about to die and he's trying to get there and his disciples are there and the crowd's surrounding him and all of a sudden he feels a little tug and he says, wait, who touched me? And the, his disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? There's people all around us. Could have been anybody. On top of that, could you imagine the father of the child saying, hey, does it matter who touched you? My child is dying. Can you come with me? No, he stops. He stops and he—he he, who touched me and this woman who for 12 years was unclean. Imagine if someone told you for 12 years, you're not clean. You're not worthy. You can't be a part of society. For 12 years, what that would do to your soul, to your heart. She reaches out and grabs on to hope and Jesus in the middle of everybody Restores her to community and says, your faith has healed you. That was important word. She was unclean. Christ made her clean. And all of a sudden, in front of all of society, the shame got washed away. The unworthiness got washed away. The uncleanliness got washed away. That's good news for this woman. That's good news for us. We can can tell the stories of Zacchaeus, the outsider, the tax collector, the one that only thought of himself, all of a sudden meets Jesus and he thinks of someone else. And he gives away the things that he had hoarded for himself. Forgiveness and a new purpose received because of the gospel. In Mark, we have a couple of... Amazing stories of Jesus feeding thousands of people. The first one, He feeds the Jews, and He has 12 baskets uh, overflowing of food for at least 5,000 people. The second feeding story, He's actually feeding Gentiles. And seven baskets of food overflowing. Twelve important, because Jesus is enough for Jerusalem. Seven important, because it's the number of completion. He's enough for everybody. Everybody. The good news means abundant life. It means you don't have to fight with your neighbor to get what you want and need. Because God's love is enough for everyone. There's no competition in a world of abundance. In Acts chapter 19, you see Paul having been in Ephesus for a, a couple of years, he's been training preachers in the, in the Hall of Tyrannus, and he's influencing the city in an amazing way. This, this place that has the great God Artemis and a big business with the silversmiths that's covered in witchcraft for just, in just a few years of spreading this good news that Jesus is enough, that He's Lord of all. Two million dollars worth of scrolls that were dedicated to sorcery were burned. Just imagine if two million dollars disappeared in our world today, what that would do. Mass panic and chaos, right? And then you get this guy who's a silversmith that uh, Demetrius, he's, he's not really happy. He's not really happy because he's, well, because his God, Artemis, is not being worshipped anymore, correct? That's why he's not happy. People are turning away from the great God. No, he's not happy because he makes the little idols that are used to worship God. And so he gets all of his idol making buddies around. He says, What's going on here? We've got to start a riot because so many people are giving up buying idols that we're losing business. Guys, don't miss what's happening here. The gospel changes the economic world. That's a powerful gospel. That when we share with our neighbors that Jesus is enough, you don't have to compete with anybody, that Christ is all-powerful. Put your faith in Him. It changes the world that we live in. So much so that the idol makers were going out of business. Imagine what that could look like in the world today if the gospel was living so powerfully in our world that things like pornography... Disappeared. It could go on. Uh, Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas in there singing in the jail. Earthquake comes, shakes the jail. All the prisoners' shackles are released. And we know that this jailer had a responsibility to make sure that the, the prisoners didn't escape. And his life really depended on it. And so when he wakes up and he sees that all the prisoners, or the gates are open, he's scared. He says, what am I going to do to be saved? And Paul says, hey listen, don't worry. Everybody's accounted for. We're all here. You're not going to lose your life. But this guy's scared to lose his life. And after he says, what am I going to do to be saved? And he's thinking of his physical life. Paul and Silas go and teach him and his whole household about Jesus Christ. And here's what's so fascinating to me. If you read the story in, in chapter 16, they go into his home. They go to the jailer's home. So he actually exits the prison, goes into the home, and eats with his family, shares with them about the good news. And then where, does, where do they go after that? After he and his whole household believed and were baptized? They go back to prison. <laughs> Paul willingly accepts prison so that this man can know Jesus and his life be spared. They take the path of weakness that to us prison would look like hopelessness, yet he shamed, Christ shames the powerful through weakness. And through weakness, Paul shared the good news. Guys, at the heart of all of these stories, we see the Gospel. And I grew up hearing that the Gospel is what? The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we are invited to when we decide to put on Him in baptism, that we die to self, that we're buried with all of those sins, and we rise again a new creation to live in the world... To call other people to die, to be buried, and to rise again. And then if enough people die or buried and rise again, think about the world that we would live in. A changed world. A good world. Let's remember what the heart of the gospel is. Death, burial, and resurrection. Because now I want to move in to some things that when we see and we start to feel passionate about the good news and we're ready to share it with all of those that... W- that don't have it, we see an adversary will come and stand in our way. He'll put up barriers, blockades. He'll try to hinder the growth of the gospel as best as possible. And if, you, if you read through the book of Acts, you see various ways that Satan tries to hinder the growth of the gospel. And I want to share a, little, a few of those, make known a few of those, because I think we're seeing some of those even today. Early on, after the day of Pentecost and thousands have come to know Christ, it doesn't take long for the disciples, for the apostles to start experiencing persecution. Peter and John taken in, slapped on the hand, said, quit talking about Jesus. Blogged, put in prison, and these uneducated fishermen say, it's better for us to obey God rather than man. And after they're flogged and imprisoned, they go right back out and do exactly what they were told not to do. They continue to spread the good news, but persecution increased. Uh, We see that, that there was such a great persecution that Christians started to scatter. They scattered, but here's what they didn't do. They didn't just hide in their homes. They scattered, and it said that So did the good news. It spread throughout the region through these people because of persecution. You see, what Satan is trying to do here is to to throw fear in the way of the spreading of the gospel. Let's try threatening them with with physical beatings, with jail time. Let's, Let's start threatening them with a potential for death. And let's see what happens. Well, we know what happens. They continued to spread the good news. We see in chapter 10, Peter is, is, has the potential here uh, to become unclean ritually as he enters in the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, uh, a pork eater. Uh, he has the opportunity to, or he could, to fear, to fear ritual Uh, uncleanliness, to fierce social rejection from his peers, his Jewish peers. But he, he enters in the home regardless of what he might come out with, thinking that he is unclean, thinking that he may be a little dirty. I think Chris preached about that a couple of weeks ago, getting dirty. Peter got dirty with Cornelius, but the Holy Spirit covered it all. And the whole household was baptized. And he goes back and convinces everybody else hey, listen, this whole deal about ritual purity, there's something more to that. God's concerned about the heart. Then in chapter 15, you start seeing Jews and Gentiles try to figure out how to be in community with each other and whether they, who needs to eat meat and this and that. And you see this dialogue and this whole idea about circumcision comes up. Because circumcision for the Jew is like national identity, right? It's like having a U.S. passport. That's what their identity was wrapped up in. And all of a sudden, these Gentiles think they can be a part of our nation. They can be part of the family of God without being circumcised. Hmm. What an interesting discussion that we would probably never have here. But they, could, they feared their national, maybe security, national purity, changing the identity of their people group. That could have been a fear. And I think it was a fear that Satan threw in front of them, but we know through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that they sent a letter back and said, Listen, Here's some things that we need to do to get along, okay? Don't eat this certain type of meat at this time because it could offend your brother. But this whole circumcision thing, let's not worry about it anymore. The Spirit of God we've seen has come upon you. Being abroad and seeing things from a distance, what I've seen in the United States and other parts of the world is Satan is trying to use fear again. To hinder the growth of the gospel. He wants to make us be afraid to leave our homes. He wants to make us be afraid to talk to somebody that looks different than us. He wants us to fear people entering into our country. He wants us to fear people that don't live exactly like us. Because if we fear, then nothing will be shared. In 1 John it says, love dries out fear, right? It drives it out. But if we hold on to fear, then the good news can't be spread. We'll keep it to ourselves. And let me assure you that if fear is present, love is not. Which is, an essential part of the gospel. It's a great scene in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus is returning up into heaven and His disciples are sitting there. And we know if you read earlier that they were there, they had doubted some that they worshiped, but some were there doubting. And they're watching their king, their security, (laughs) leave. And they're looking up. And I love what happens when they're looking up. A couple of angels come down and say, what are you looking at? Why are you standing there staring up into the sky? This Jesus is going to come back. It's time to get to work. Right? So they go to Jerusalem and they start to pray and the Holy Spirit comes on and all of a sudden they're empowered. And what we see happening in Acts is as Satan throws fear tactics in in the face of the disciples, they don't sit around thinking, look What has come of our world? Look what it's come to. Look what horrors are there. Look how bad we are spiritually and morally. They don't sit and say, Look what has come of our world. They say, Look who has come into the world. They're not focused on the fears, they're focused on Jesus who drives out fear. Guys, that's a hindrance to the spreading of the good news when we are gripped with fear to the point that we forget that Jesus Christ is more powerful. He's more powerful. And He loves those people that we are fearing. We see that hindrance come in Acts and we're seeing it today, but let's don't be fooled by it. Another hindrance to the gospel we see is self-righteousness. Again, in Acts chapter 5, we see Barnabas. He's giving all of these guys. He's known as a very generous man, and he's doing this, and he's receiving praise. People are encouraged by him. He's kind of becoming a name there in the Christian community, and a couple of people see kind of what's going on. Hey, if I give and sell my possessions and give in front of all these people, I I could become something. Don't you know that's probably what's going on in the minds of Ananias and Sapphira? They're seeing a way to increase their status in the face of the gospel, to appear to do something righteous to receive some reward socially, some popularity. And so they sell their, some of their land and they keep back part of it, we know, and and they're struck dead for it because they bring it to the apostles' feet and they say, is this all the money? Yeah, it's all the money, guys. Look, look what I've given away for the Lord. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I can imagine that's kind of the motivation. And God doesn't put up with it because there's no room for self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. It's the exact opposite of self-sacrifice. And so he cuts, he cuts it down and, and the church is gripped with fear not of the world, fear of a God who says, don't muddy my waters. Don't make my gospel couched with money or equivalent to money or with doing good things. It's about self-sacrifice. It's about my grace. And so we see This happened also to the disciples while Jesus was walking with them. Uh, They're passing through Samaria and they don't really welcome Jesus. And like Jesus' good disciples do, they said, listen, let's just rain fire down on all these people who aren't welcoming you and us, of course, because we're obviously the, the hope for the world. So let's just blow them out of the water. Let's rain fire down on them. That's what they say to Jesus. Oh, Okay, they, they at least knew he had the power to do so. And he didn't sit around saying, you know what, that's a good idea. Those people didn't welcome me. I'm going to throw fire down on them because look how good I am. He rebuked them. He rebuked them. And if you read around that story, you have this conversation constantly between the disciples of who is the greatest and... Jesus says, that's not what it's about, guys. It's about my love. It's about the fact that you need just as much mercy as the people that didn't welcome me. So he tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the tax collector, in the face of the Pharisee, is down on his knees and he's beating his chest and he says, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of David, have mercy on me. Ten misericordia de me. Right? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Guys, it's really easy to fall into this place of comfortability that, that to think that we are better off than we really are. But we don't deserve anything. But praise God that we have His Son that that gives us hope, that says we are worthy, but nothing that we do, nothing that we say, no great act that we perform, makes us any better than the person that rejects Jesus. Because both parties are in need of mercy. There's lots of talk about the new Pope in Latin America. And he's, got some, he's done some incredible things, some very non-traditional things. And He, he wrote a book... Um, that came out this year, said, uh, El Nombre de Dios es Misericordia. The name of God is mercy. And uh, there's, it's an interview between him and, and a guy there that's asking him questions. And you can imagine, a man doesn't get to be Pope without serving many, many years within the Catholic Church taking confessions. And so there's a question asked to the Pope and he says, after thousands and thousands of confessions... How do you not become prideful? And how do you not become discouraged? And this is the passage that he quoted. He said, Before I go into the confessional booth, I pray this prayer. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's don't let our own self-righteousness hinder the true message of the gospel, and that is mercy. That we are all in need of it. And because we are all all in need of it, we can share it freely with others. That's the heart. That's death. That's burial. That's resurrection. I I don't even have a watch. Sorry, guys. Um, Um. I just get we just got to keep going with the good news right Uh, another hindrance that we see and we've seen it in our lifetime too is this idea of division Uh, as the church grows in Acts Satan's throwing out all the stops I mean he's trying he's employing every method he can to try to keep the the growth of the gospel and so in Acts chapter 6 you see a fight break out basically between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews Um, they are not getting The widows are not getting the food that they need, and there's kind of this cultural battle going on. Because if fear is not going to work, if self-righteousness is not going to work, then the next best thing is let's just divide the people of God. And there's nothing better... It was nothing better in my house growing up uh, that, to divide than food, as me and my brothers would compete for who who would get the most or the big turkey leg on Thanksgiving um, to the point that my grandmother had to have a six-legged turkey one time to have us all have a turkey leg. No, he tries to divide culturally. And the wisdom of the Spirit, uh, the apostles there appointed men, we know how they diffused the situation. They served. They served to get past that division. Um, When there is... The temptation for division, there's always a competition. In the animistic world, which is one that we'll be visiting, we'll be living in in Peru, we lived in, in, in Zambia, there's always competition for the things of life that you need uh, food, water, shelter, health care. Uh, the worldview says there's not enough in the world, so I've got to compete for those things to survive, where you're even competing with your own family members to get the things that you need to survive. And that game looks like uh, going to a witch doctor or getting some sort of potion and cursing your neighbor, cursing your wife, uh, your children, so that they don't get more than what you get. That's the game. Now, kind of sounds a little bit similar to our, I don't know, economic practices here with materialism. There's not enough, so we've got to get more. And we've got to get it before someone else gets it this constant competition. I've got to sell more than my competition so that I can have the bigger house and I can get the better car. Our exchange is money rather than potions. But you have this competition. Or, maybe more appropriately for for the Christian realm, we have this competition between different tribes of faith, different denominations, We've got to have a bigger building, we've got to have more people in the building. We've got to do this service. they did they did this, so we've got to match that and do more. And we have this competition with people that are already professing the name of Jesus. We've got better ideas, theologies, practices. But division will hinder the gospel. It has. How many people in our world in our United States that look at Christianity and say why do I want to be a part of that? I'll fight just as much as my parents did growing up. I don't want to be a part of that. Look at how divided you are. There was a a book written in the last 20 years that, that desired to draw lines of fellowship. And one of the the things one of the passages that the author uses to dictate lines between people that profess Jesus Christ uh, is a passage in Mark, and in in Mark chapter nine you have this discussion between the disciples that says, uh, "Who's going to be the greatest?" Okay, there's this competition going on. I want to be better in the kingdom. I want to sit at the right hand. I want to sit at the left hand. Who's going to be the greatest? Jesus rebukes that, he shuts it down, and then in the next section, in verse 38, chapter 9, the disciples run up to Jesus and say, hey, we saw somebody, he was casting out demons in your name. He's not one of us. What are we going to do about it? we will it rain fire down on him too? What does Jesus say? No one can perform a miracle in my name and in the next breath curse me. If he's not against us, he's if he's he's for us. No one can give you a cup of water in my name and be against me. One of the ways that Satan desires to hinder the spread of the good news is to create division. To create division within our churches. Within the larger realm of Christianity, so that the world will see that we really don't believe that Jesus believes in love and unity. So they won't even think about entertaining a conversation about our God. But we gravitate at times to division, to competition. It happened to me even in language school around a bunch of missionaries that came from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, within Christianity. <laughs> a bunch of missionaries are sitting in language school trying to learn Spanish and all of a sudden we're trying to compete with each other. Like we don't all have the same goal in mind, but I want to be a better Spanish speaker than you because I want to have a more successful ministry than you have. Man, Satan works so deceitfully and, and, and cunningly. And we, a bunch of us started recognizing it because it was stressing us all out that hey, I didn't get a Good grade on this test, but you did. Man, I'm going to be a horrible missionary. We had to confront each other and say, Guys, what are we doing? In a year, we all hope to be going carrying this message of good news in a different language. So let's stop competing and let's start encouraging each other. Let's start working together. Let me tell you, it takes death and burial to be able to get to that point. It takes sacrificing your own ambitions, your own... Thoughts at times of superiority to get to the point where you can look across the table of someone that, that's different than you and choose to love and choose to work together. The division is a tool of Satan. I want to close with, with a couple of... Uh, one more tool. Uh, human strength is a tool that Satan will use to try to to hinder the gospel. Man, this thing doesn't want to stay up. Um, Human strength. It says, through power, human power, we can change the world. That's not working out very well in the world right now. It hasn't worked out in history. Because in Corinthians it says that weakness will change the world. And we know in Mark chapter 8, you have this... Gospel that Peter has where he's excited because he's with the Messiah. They're going to become powerful. They're going to overturn Rome. They're going to bring uh, restoration back to Israel. And when Jesus says he's got to die, Peter says, wait a minute, that doesn't match up with my idea of what what the new kingdom looks like. Um, Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. You have the things of men in mind, not of God. Uh, He has a different idea of what the gospel is. The gospel is not a gospel of human power. It's a gospel of weakness, of death, of burial, of resurrection. Because then he tells him, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to deny yourself and follow me. That this is the gospel. And this is what I want to say to us this morning, is that we have an amazing, powerful message that has the potential to change lives and change the world but if we don't share it and spread it in the Lord's way, then it's not the Lord's work that we're doing. If we try to force things through human power, through sh- power structures that are present in our world, and we think that's going to be the answer, that's going to bring about change, positive change in the world, then we're wrong, we're mistaken. We have bought into the lie that we can change our situation. But we cannot. We must die. We must be buried so that we can rise again and accept that Jesus Christ is the one that will change the situation. Guys, this is the gospel that Satan so desires to hinder because he knows that it will change everything. I want to have a, a, a prayer that I want to read and point out a couple of things because this is something that was brought to my attention while I was gone. This is Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is writing a prayer to the Ephesians. In verse 14 it says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's a, there's an interesting part of this prayer that for a long time I, I kind of didn't see because somebody brought it to my attention. For many years I've prayed, and I've heard prayers prayed, that God would strengthen us. That God would strengthen us to endure whatever situation that comes our way, difficult situation, to survive the world around us, uh, that God would strengthen us. That's a common prayer, right? We've probably, some of you probably prayed that for your life. Please, God, give me strength. And I don't think that's a bad prayer, but that's not exactly the prayer that Paul is praying here in verse 16. I'm going to read it again, 16 and 17. Listen closely. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that. Now, this is a very important word. In fact, I spent weeks trying to learn how to use so that in Spanish. It's actually a lot more complicated than what it sounds. So that, or parque, verdad? Uh, The grammar rule says that those words mean there's a purpose involved here. Proposito. There is a purpose for what's about to be said. There's a purpose for the prayer, for power, for strength, for the power to dwell in us. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look what Paul is asking strength for. He's not asking strength for power to survive the world. He's not asking God to strengthen the church to endure a difficult situation. He's asking strength to survive the power of the Spirit that is within us. I heard it described that the the spirit, the power of the spirit is like a nuclear material in a paper bag. And that we are the paper bag. Okay, a paper bag doesn't stand a chance with that type of power within it. Right, Henry? So, of course, we need to ask God to strengthen us to survive the power that is... Christ's Spirit dwelling within us. I don't understand that kind of power but I know and believe and hope that that power is the power that will bring change into this world that will feed the hungry children that will sit down with a refugee and say man I have no idea what it's like to be cast out of my home. Can you tell me about it? Power to not worry about what happens politically that God is in control. And it says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to think for a minute, what is the most loving thing you can think about doing? Just think for a second. Think about what is the most loving thing you could imagine doing. Hard loving thing. It would be really difficult to do this type of love. Got it? It's more than that. It surpasses that. That's the power of the love that dwells within us as Christians. That's the power that we need to be strengthened to survive, to dwell within us. And when the power of God is fully dwelling within us, that we have been strengthened and matured as the body of Christ, that we are fully indwelling the power of Jesus Christ. Then there is nothing 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 that will stop the gospel. Not death. Not sickness. Not anything. And that's what I hope to see in Peru. I hope to see families of believers like East Brainerd that says we're about the gospel that we're going to live a life on mission with a heart-shaped, with a gospel-shaped heart where we can see the world as Christ did and say, look who has come into this world. It's about death, burial, and resurrection, guys, and, and I want to extend an invitation. If you haven't started that journey of dying and to self, burying all those things that you don't need anymore, that are useless, and living a resurrected life, If you haven't started that journey, we've got the opportunity this morning to put on Christ in baptism. And let me tell you that that doesn't end there. The baptismal life continues every day as we decide to die to self and to bury the things that we don't need and to live the resurrected life. And so I want to extend that invitation, and I want to invite us all to live a life on mission, to invite others in, to share with them the powerful, life-changing message of Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you.